an idea of what you do with speakers. You take an offering up front. Um, we will be um, sharing with you some things from Christian Legal Society from our uh, inventory of books that we will present to the school tomorrow. They're being shipped out here. I appreciated that last number, How Great Thou Art. It's a, an old Swedish hymn. And uh, as a Swede came off the boat 33 years ago this month from Sweden at the age of eight and a half, uh, I appreciate that very, very much. You know what they say? The question is, uh, what do you call a Swedish college graduate? A myth? Um, I'm a Christian lawyer. Now, for some people, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, like postal service <laughs> or scholar athlete. or military intelligence. <laughs> In any event, there are... I'm, I'm glad that the Lord called me into service as a Christian lawyer. You know, after three years as a minister, the Lord decided to become an advocate, and he's now arguing and advocating our cause before the Father, so he's also uh, a lawyer currently. Christian Legal Society, we have some 5,000 lawyers that seek to integrate faith and practice. That's about one-seventh of the 35,000 Christian lawyers that we believe are currently practicing in the U.S. That's only 5% of the total of 700,000 lawyers in the United States. But the Lord doesn't need the majority, all he needs is effective salt and light in every profession. He's never been one to operate with the masses. He wants a faithful man, a faithful woman in place of service, and he'll turn things around. Because he is a sovereign God. And that's going to be the theme of our time together in the next three days is the sovereignty of God. It's one that we need to have repeated time and again because there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of defeatism, there's a lot of negativism that I find in the evangelical and slash fundamentalist circles today about our God. He is sovereign. He reigns. We won the war 2,000 years ago. I'm known in my office and elsewhere as the optimist, and my response to that is, how can anyone be a pessimist after the resurrection? There is no basis for pessimism, defeatism after the resurrection. And we're going to focus in on the sovereignty of God in law and religion, in peacemaking and in life in the next three days. There's a story about the King of England looking for a new Prime Minister and he had searched long and hard and came up with three final candidates, a mathematician, a philosopher, and a lawyer. And he brought each one in separately and asked them one final question. He's 
with a preface saying, I've asked you everything I really want, except now I need to ask you one last question. And I just want you to tell me, Mr. Mathematician, he was actually a math prof, how much is 2 plus 2? And the mathematician says, well, it depends on the number theory you're operating from, if it's a base 10 or a base 8 or whatever, but I suggest that 2 plus 2 is 4. King says, thank you very much. Brings in the philosophy professor. And he asks him, how much is 2 plus 2? And he thinks about it and thinks about it and then asks, what is 2? <laughs> is there 2? We would have to examine the two-ness of this problem. But it is conceivable that two-ness plus two-ness is four-ness. <laughs> and the king says, thank you. And brings in a lawyer. And he asks the lawyer, tell me, how much is two plus two? And without a moment's hesitation, the lawyer looks the king in the eye and he says, your highness, how much do you want it to be? <laughs> now, let me ask you this about your Christian life. How much do you want it to be? It's up to you. It's not up to your neighbor. It's not up to your pastor. It's not up to anybody else. It's up to you. My life verse is Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My life problem is that I put a period after I can do all things, period, and tend to forget that without him I can do nothing. So how much do you want it to be? Do you want God to be sovereign in your life? Do you want him to reign? Do you want him to be Lord? The choice is yours. This morning I'm going to share some illustrations from the way God has moved in my life and the life of others. But before I do, I'd like to have us focus on a psalm that has become perhaps my favorite, Psalm 37. It's a psalm that I've used in the 17 years as a practicing lawyer. I've used this hundreds and hundreds of times, if not thousands, with people that have legal problems. I'd like to have you listen to see what David might say to us if he were present today addressing some of the issues that we face in our society, legal issues, social issues, economic issues. What might he say to us as believers? He'd say, don't fret, don't get angry because of evildoers. And don't envy the wrongdoers, for they shall wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Rather, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate, not success, but faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass, and He'll bring forth your righteousness, the rightness of what you do as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on Him, 
Fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And then verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, not if he falls, but when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. The sovereignty of God. He is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God. A century ago, a Danish pastor made a comment which became sort of my theme for the year 1984. Each year for the last 20, I've looked back on the preceding year and I've asked myself the question, what did I learn that year? Was it just like every other year? Or was there something that stood out in that particular year? And in 1984, the lesson that I learned was that life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forward. Life can very often only be understood by looking backwards. And then you see a trustworthy, a sovereign God, which then gives you the strength to live it forward into the unknown. Life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forward. In a couple of weeks, the United States Supreme Court is going to hand down a decision which will be reported by every major network in this country, which will be front page news in the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, New York Times, you name it, Chicago Tribune. It will be the lead story the day it comes out. The issue is whether or not students in our public secondary schools, junior high schools and high schools, should be allowed to meet during their own time for Bible study and prayer on the same basis that they might otherwise meet for chess or some secular subject. The issue of religion in public schools is one that's been around a long time. It didn't start with Madeleine Murray O'Hare back in the early 60s. It didn't start with the U.S. Supreme Court decisions in the early 60s. It goes back at least 140, 150 years. In Philadelphia, for example, in the early 1840s, the school board in Philadelphia adopted a mandatory Bible reading and prayer policy for their public schools. It was very Protestant because part of the goal was to convert the Catholics. When the Catholic cardinal objected and wanted to use the Catholic version of the Bible for their children in Catholic prayers, the result was riots, people were killed, churches and homes were burned over 
prayer and Bible reading in the public schools in the 1840s. And that was repeated in other places in this country. Today we have some 36 million children in our public schools. That's a population equivalent and greater than 24 African nations sitting in our public schools. Anywhere between 3 to 5 million of those children are from homes that are either evangelical or fundamentalist. In our public schools, we have 2.7 million teachers and administrators. 10% of them, we estimate, are believers. That's 270,000 people serving the Lord in the public school arena. That's four times the number of all the missionaries sent out by all the churches in the United States worldwide in our public schools. It's for that reason why the public schools and public education has been first order of business for the Christian Legal Society because we are not ready to turn that over to anybody. We want Christians to be salt and light in the public schools. And if you're preparing for teaching, if you're preparing for public schools, I say you've got a great calling because I stand before you as someone who is ministered to by role models of a Mr. Sandberg in the sixth grade, of Mr. Roulette, my junior high school homeroom teacher, of Miss Schneider, my high school Spanish teacher, of Miss Maxfield, my high school science teacher, because of people like that who lived out their lives being salt in life, not wearing Jesus saved buttons or fish, but living out their lives in a way that said to me, a student that there is something real to this thing called Christianity and that's why I'm here today in 1962 the Supreme Court made a decision that I considered to be very biblical unfortunately there are many fundamentalists and others who disagree the Supreme Court took a 22 word prayer written by a committee in the state of New York. You know, it was one of those prayers that offended no one, except perhaps God. It's a little difficult to write a prayer that offends no one. And they had passed a law that said this prayer will be led in by public school teachers at the beginning of the school day in our public schools in New York, in the state of New York. A parent objected saying that's a form of establishing a state religion. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that the state has no business writing prayers for anybody. Now, I think that's biblically sound. What did Christ say about repetitious prayers? We should avoid repetitious prayers. And I don't know anything more repetitious than something written by the state. Unfortunately, that was not well received. And so for 24 years, many well-meaning, but I think misguided Christians have sought to reverse that decision. But the following year, we had a decision that caused even more of an uproar because here we had a lady named Madeline. Her son, Billy, was attending schools in Baltimore. At the beginning of the school day in Baltimore, as well as in the state of Pennsylvania and Maryland and elsewhere, the schools 
no longer used a state written prayer now they used a prayer that had been written or spoken 2,000 years ago it's called the Lord's Prayer and Madeline objected to have the state by law having a local school public school sponsor and teachers lead in the Lord's Prayer now you say what's wrong with that my 12 year old daughter a few years ago when this issue was before the US Congress we we talked about the Lord's Prayer and I asked her if she would recite it to me which she did then I said Monica who is that addressed to and she says to God and I said that's right and what's his name she says father that's right our father Monica what relationship do you need to have with a person before you call them father and she said you need to be their child that's right now Monica tell me if somebody says father to a person and they're not related what do you have and she says they're lying see God is not impressed with the former religion he wants the substance of worship and when you have in the public schools 90% of the people teachers and students as non-believers it doesn't please God that only one out of ten times somebody leading in worship would actually be related to the father that they're praying to and so when the Supreme Court said that a state-initiated and school-sponsored and teacher-led prayer in the public schools violated the establishment clause of our Constitution because it was a form of establishing a religion it is religion if prayer isn't religion let us know but that was religion and prayer is worship the Supreme Court said it doesn't belong when the state initiates it the school leads it and the teacher leads it that's what the Supreme Court said unfortunately the rhetoric took over because before long you started hearing the statement that the Supreme Court had declared all voluntary student prayer in public schools unconstitutional how many of you have heard that said that all voluntary student prayer in public schools is unconstitutional the Supreme Court has never ever said that what the Supreme Court said was a state-initiated school-sponsored and teacher-led prayer exercise in the classroom is unconstitutional but the rhetoric took over so that by the mid 70s we had a situation at the University of Missouri where a group of college students in the public university the marketplace of ideas wanted to have a Bible study on the front lawn they went to get permission from the university the university said no don't you know that all voluntary prayer among students in public schools and public universities is unconstitutional well these students went to Jim Smart a CLS lawyer and Jim had just hung out his shingle he needed clients didn't have any clients and they didn't have any money it was one of those perfect matches <laughs> and so Jim represented the students in the case that became known as Widmar versus Vincent which we'll come back to in a few minutes a few months after that incident up in upper state New York six students Catholics wanted to meet before school in an empty room for prayer 
The principal said, don't you know that all voluntary student prayer is unconstitutional? I mean, that's what Jesse Helms has said, Jerry Falwell has said it, Pat Robertson has said it, Tim LaHaye has said it, Pre President Reagan has said it. Everybody says that. So the answer is no, you can't pray. They went to court. The court said it was too dangerous to permit six kids to meet in an empty room before school for prayer. When that decision came down, that was not by the U.S. Supreme Court, that was a lower federal court. When that came down, CLS had a meeting with some leading evangelicals in September of 1981 in Hot Springs, Virginia. And we decided that there was no more important issue for evangelicals than that of religious speech in the public place. See, we're evangelicals, and as evangelicals, if you can't share the good news, the, evan the evangel, the message, the great message, that is devastating for evangelicals. So we felt religious speech was the most important issue of the day for us. At the time when we had that meeting, we didn't know that that very week, a young lady named Lisa Bender up in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, had gone to her principal and asked for permission to form a Bible club during the club period. Now they had 25 other clubs going, an ecology club, an aviation club, a speech club, a drama club, you name it, they had a club for it. So Lisa and a few friends thought, why not have a Bible club? The principal said, okay, it's all right, but uh, let's not advertise the thing, no publicity. And she said, fine, we'll spread it the, the word by word of mouth, and which they did. Forty-five kids showed up at the first meeting. Now, that was less than two percent of the student body, but the principal got a little concerned and called up the superintendent of schools, who called up the lawyer, and the lawyer says, don't you know that all voluntary student prayer in public schools is unconstitutional? So tell them no. That happened the very week we decided that what was later known as equal access was to be our primary issue of focus. See, life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forward. We didn't know about Lisa when we made the decision as to where we would put our focus. After we made the decision, I brought along a young man named Steve Galeback. Steve had gone to Yale undergraduate and went, got smart and went to Harvard Law School. My pastor used to tell me it was a good thing that I didn't go to Yale because my mother has a strong Swedish accent and if anyone were to ask her, where is Sam these days, she would say, well, he's in Yale, which would cause some concern. But Steve had graduated top of his class at Harvard, was working for the finest law firm in Washington, D.C., was on a fast track to making big, big bucks. On the way back from this meeting, he said to me, Sam, what you people are doing at Christian Legal Society, and at that time there was only one of us on the religious freedom side on staff, what you're doing is exactly what I want to do. Is there a place for me? I just about drove off the road and I said, Steve, we're very Protestant in our approach to missions. You know, we're a little different than the Catholics. The Catholics have a wonderful way towards missions. They have a policy, if you take a vow of poverty and join their mission, that they'll take care of them. You never see any Catholics out raising support, do you? 
Protestants say, if you feel called to our mission, terrific. Take a vow of poverty, come on board and raise your own support. And so I told Steve, that's the way we operate. He resigned from that law firm and joined us. The same week that he joined us, a young lady named Kim Colby, who was Phi Beta Kappa at the University of Illinois, went to Harvard Law School, came walking in the door and a job opportunity had fallen through and she's married to another lawyer and they had decided that Kim's time should be spent in service, as a servant. And so she asked if she could serve as a volunteer for CLS. First year and a half, I paid Kim about $4,000, about a dollar and a half an hour. There is no lawyer, woman lawyer in the United States in the last five years that has had greater impact on important issues than Kim Colby. See, if you want to be first in income, you'll probably be the last in impact. But if you want to be first in impact, you may be last in income. So Kim joined us, and just to show that we're an equal opportunity employer, a fellow named Kern Tiffany, who was president of his class at Columbia Law School, had gone to Annapolis Naval Academy, was working for and had worked for 22 years for AT&T, top four corner office. Now that's important. When you've got the top four corner office, you're important. Earning in the six figures. Calls me up and he said, Sam, I want to retire 10 years early and join you and work for free. The cost to Curran, $1 million out of pocket. Now those, we had the task, equal access, religious speech in the public schools. We had the team. Now we needed the tool. And a week after the team was assembled, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in an eight-to-one decision that the University of Missouri was in error when they denied Cornerstone the right to meet because religious speech has as much protection in public places as any other form of speech. We won the day, so we now had the tool. Now we needed to do our homework, and Steve and Kim and Curran got busy on research, and it took two months to come out with a 200-page memo taking that Supreme Court case as to how we could put it into the public schools. Because that was a public university case, which is different than the public schools. The day, almost to the day, that we finished that research and had done our homework, we got a call from Lubbock, Texas. In Lubbock, Texas, the school district had tried to implement an equal access approach of allowing students to meet before and after school for Bible clubs. But the courts had turned them down because in prior years they had violated the Constitution in any number of ways. And so they'd lost their credibility and the courts no longer believed them when they wanted to give their students equal access. And they needed to take this case to the U.S. Supreme Court and they called up and they said, would you take the case? And, you know, the Lord said, if you're not faithful in using what you've got, the little thing, you're not going to get any more. And this was not a very good case, but it was all that we had. So we said, okay, we'll help you take your case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the week we made that decision, Lisa Bender called us up and told us about her problem. Now, Lisa's case is so good, factually and legally, that our opponents 
have accused the Christian Legal Society of staging that case. That's a compliment. <laughs> now we tell them that yes, it's there by design, but he's going to have to take all the credit. See, life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forward. If you trust in the Lord and you do good, you dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, you delight yourselves in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. So now we had the two cases in the courts, Lisa Bender's case and the Lubbock case, and we got to work on that. But that's only half of the approach, or half of the tools available and the vehicles available, is the courts. Now Lisa's problem was in September of 1981. That's when it started. Here it is, February of 1986. And we still don't have an answer on Lisa's case. It takes at least five years, even in the most, under the most expeditious procedures, to get a case from the problem through the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's when it moves fast. But see, in five years' time, 15 million students passed through our public high schools. We didn't have five years and 15 million kids to waste on an erroneous approach to the law. And so we were approached by Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon and some other senators about taking that Widmar case of equal access and putting it into the public's, into a law. And they asked us if we could do it. And we said, we'll draft something. And over a pizza one day, we drafted, it was a great pizza. <laughs> we drafted the bill that eventually became the Equal Access Act. And I assigned it to Steve to do, and Steve was just getting going with that legislation when we got a call from the White House one day. And they said, we're looking for somebody that knows something about pro-life and the, the abortion issue and religious liberty. And could you recommend somebody for the White House staff position for that, for that post? And Steve was about to get married, and we couldn't afford to give him a raise, and he needed a little more money. And so we asked Steve if he would like to open up a branch office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> and so Steve went out the door, being the only person ever hired by the White House to get a raise. Everybody else takes a cut. So Steve went out the door, and I was wondering who's going to do this job for Senator Hatfield and others, and in walks Lowell Sturgill. Lowell was Phi Beta Kappa at William & Mary, and was top of his class at Georgetown Law School, and after graduation, before he was going to clerk for a federal appellate court judge, he had the summer off. He could earn 900 a week, or he could work for us for next to nothing. He chose the latter. And as he walked in the door, I asked him, Lowell, you know anything about the Widmar case and the Lubbock case? And he said, Sam, I did my third year paper on Widmar and Lubbock. See, if you trust in the Lord and you do good and you dwell in the land, you cultivate faithfulness, he will bring in law clerks fully equipped to do your work. <laughs> and so Senator, his Lowell Sturgill's first piece of work that he did as a lawyer was the memo that Senator Hatfield introduced as the first exhibit in the last prayer amendment debates in the U.S. Congress that became the Equal Access Act, but that's getting ahead of the story. We were going along very well until January of 1983 when we were hoping that the Supreme Court would say yes to the Lubbock case. I'd spent 600 hours on that particular case trying to get it together, and we had got 24 U.S. senators to join in on a brief with us. 
But then the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to take it. What do you do when you get no as an answer? You know what we do in our office? We apply Paul's golden rule for losers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, 18. In everything, give thanks. So when we lose, we throw parties. When we win, we throw parties. But when we lose, we throw parties. And so we went out to celebrate because we've discovered every time we get no, the Lord has proven himself that he has a better idea. And what happened was that when the Supreme Court said no to us on that Lubbock case, 24 U.S. senators who had urged the court to take the case got a little upset because they don't like to be told no. So now you had 24 U.S. senators behind us and a steamroller was starting to move through the Senate. And in May of 1983, in the federal lower court, Lisa's case, we won in the lower court. So we now had a good decision, 46 pages long, written by a Catholic judge who has 10 children in public schools. He knew the issues. But we needed somebody in the House of Representatives. The Senate was doing very good, but the House was a different story. And so a lawyer named Ed Larson, who had also graduated from Harvard, and he was clerking for us, so working as a lawyer for us for the year. And we got a call from the House of Representatives saying, there's an opening on the House Education Committee. Do you know somebody who could fill the slot? And uh, I said, when do you need him? He says, August 1. And Ed, when are you done with your project for CLS? August 1. Ed, would you like to go to Washington? He's a bachelor, early 30s, flexible. And he said, fine. What I didn't know was that Ed Larson, three months earlier, had been asked by a U.S. congressman, friend of the family, to join the staff of the House Education Committee in basically the same position as the one that we talked to him about. Now, Ed is only one of 700,000 lawyers in the United States. What do you think the probabilities are that the same lawyer would be asked by two different people with two totally different agendas to fill the same slot? See, you trust in the Lord and you do good and you dwell in the land and you cultivate faithfulness. Commit your way to him and trust in him and he'll bring it to pass. So Ed joined the staff. And then in January 1984, we got our second big no. We figured with Steve over at the White House that we had nothing but, well, we had the White House in our back pocket. And then the president announced that the White House and the Republicans were going to make the prayer amendment their first order of business instead of equal access. See, 1984 was an election year. And the one way to lock in the conservatives in this country is just to say, I'm for the prayer amendment. When you've done that, the thinking stops, and everybody like robots fall in line. And so the Reagan administration, I don't think this was President Reagan's motive, but the powers that be had this motive in mind. They wanted to lock in the religious right and conservatives early in 1984, and they did it by pushing the prayer amendment. Again, we threw a party, because that's not what we wanted. And as we were partying, we realized that there was another party in Washington known as the Democratic Party. 
1984 being against the prayer amendment was not good politics. They needed a better idea. So we arranged for somebody to make a visit and pay a visit on the Democrats in the House and mentioned equal access to them and the Democrats thought it was the, a great idea that they had thought of. <laughs> and so the most powerful Democrat that in the House apart from Tip O'Neill, Carl Perkins, the chairman of the House Education Committee, became the sponsor along with evangelical Don Bonker of the state of Washington of the Equal Access Bill. We now had the Republicans in the Senate pushing equal access with the Democrats in the House. But Carl Perkins needed a little support from home to really push it. Remember Lisa? Well, she graduated from high school, went to uh, join the New Tribes Mission as a missionary, and she was in training, and we needed to touch base with her in February of 84, and we called her up one morning, and no, she was no longer in Michigan, and we tracked her down to boot camp. And we asked, what are you doing, Lisa? And she said, I'm in boot camp training here in eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky. What's the name of your congressman? She says, I don't know. I've only been here for two weeks. Would you check? She says, okay, hold on. A guy named Carl Perkins. Oh. Say, Lisa, now that you've been in his district and you know the district well, could you write some letters? And in two weeks' time, Lisa Bender, age 19, college sophomore, generated 300 letters to Carl Perkins. And guess who was a lead-off witness in April of 1984 as the witness on equal access? Lisa Bender. Guess who was locked in as committed as ever? Carl Perkins. See, if you trust in the Lord, that's one thing. But you've got to be about the business of doing good and dwelling in the land, being involved in the process, and cultivating faithfulness, not just sitting around. And don't think that college sophomores can't do things. Every letter in Washington that comes into a congressman is viewed by most congressmen as worth 4,000 voices. We've got 500 in this room. How many millions is that? Yes, letters count. Things were going well, real well. In fact, the NEA brought in 200 lobbyists against us. The ACLU was against us. The Jewish community was against us. The LA Times was against us. The Washington Post was against us. The New York Times was going against us. Things were going well. <laughs> we were all set for the big vote, May 15th. Tip O'Neill had said, you get one vote, Carl, May 15th. The big moment arrived, and because of the procedure used, we needed a two-thirds vote. When the tally was done, we had 270 yes, 151 no. We missed by 11. So what do you do? You throw a party. <laughs> but this time, there were only two of us at the party. And that was Carl Perkins and myself, and I asked Mr. Perkins, his name was Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, now what do we do? And he said, well, Tip O'Neill said I only get one crack at it, but if there's a good vote in the Senate, we'll get a second crack. Okay, so on January, June 27th, the U.S. Senate voted 88 to 11 to vote to pass equal access. And now we thought it was, we were home free. 88 to 11, back to the House with Carl Perkins in the lead. 
But then Tip O'Neill did something that has only been done one other time in 60 years. He took our bill and he put it over in the burial grounds, House Judiciary Committee, and told the chairman, if you want over there, you can bring it out sometime after August 6th. If you don't bring it out, don't worry. Because C. Tip O'Neill was neutral. Carl Perkins stood up on the floor of the Congress and he said, in 36 years, Mr. Speaker, I've never been treated worse. This is inappropriate, it is illegal what you're doing. And I'm calling for a procedure that only Carl Perkins, of all the people in the world, could call for, called Calendar Wednesday for July 25th, 1984. And then Carl Perkins did something that he hadn't done for 36 years. He went to the first Democratic convention of his career to lobby for equal access. And the only reason he could go to the convention was because in 1980 they changed the rules allowing congressmen to bump anybody at a last minute's notice and go to the convention. See, life can only be understood backwards. It must be lived forward. Even democratic convention rules are governed by a sovereign God. And so he went out there, lobbied, came back and said to Tip O'Neill, I got the votes. So on July 25th, 1984, the vote was 337 to 77, we had won. But that was the bill. What about Lisa's case? See, Lisa's case was appealed. And the decision was supposed to come down in April of 1984, and we knew we had a win. It didn't come down in April, and we said, Lord, get those judges moving up there, because we got a win. It didn't come down in May. He said, Lord, what are you doing? Dragging your feet? What are you, retired? Have you resigned? Didn't come down in June. Didn't come down until one hour after the successful vote in the House of Representatives. And then we discovered, to our surprise, that instead of winning, we got ourselves reversed in a two-to-one decision. Lisa's case was reversed. And if that had come down one day earlier, we would have lost the vote in the House of Representatives. See, life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forward. Now we had an interesting problem, and I see the time is running out, but I just want to wrap it up quickly. We had an interesting problem. 90% of the U.S. Congress says yes to equal access, but all the courts, lower courts, had said no. What do you do if you're an attorney representing the school district? What do you do if you're a principal? Do you listen to the courts or do you listen to the Congress? It's very confusing. So we thought it would be appropriate to get together with the ACLU, the NEA, the Americans for Democratic Action, all those fundamentalist types, you know, <laughs> to talk about guidelines for the public schools. We worked for 10 weeks. Then on October 11th, in the U.S. Congressional Record, guidelines were introduced where the ACLU and all of our enemies gave CLS and our address and phone number as the people to call in the event anybody in any of the 24,000 high schools across the country had any question about equal access, just call Sam Erickson and Kim Colby at the following number. I should mention, too, that six days after the successful vote in the House of Representatives, on a flight back 
to Kentucky. Carl Perkins died of a heart attack. See, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. If Tip O'Neill had not pulled his stunt of trying to pigeonhole that particular bill, the vote would have come up in the House three days after Carl Perkins' death. But now we had Gus Hawkins of Los Angeles as the new chairman of the House Education Committee, and he is opposed to equal access, so he would never have brought the bill up for a vote. So Tip O'Neill, for whatever purposes, he thought he was going to block it, but the Lord used that posturing for his own good. In preparing for the brief to the Supreme Court, we're allowed a 30, 30 pages. When, you t when we took our brief and taking Lisa's case, see the beauty about losing. The beauty about losing is you get to appeal. And so we got to take Lisa's case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the petition, you're allowed 30 pages. And when we picked up our typeset copy of our 44-page transcript, type written transcript down to typeset, it ended on line 30, page 30. Now you say, come on, Sam, you're not saying that God is really involved in typesetting. <laughs> Sam, you're giving God too much credit. See, my problem in life is not that I give God too much credit. My problem is that I don't give him sufficient credit. If God can speak the universe into existence at a moment in time, he can certainly arrange typesetting in a brief. On October 15th, we argued the case before Justices Blackman, Brennan, Berger, Marshall, O'Connor, Rehnquist, Powell, Stevens, and White. Two weeks before, or a few weeks before the argument, I was interviewed by Fred Graham of CBS News for the Dan Rather News program. And I decided that I would not argue the case, but let Jim Smart argue the case. Jim Smart was the fellow who won the Widmar University case. And at the end of the interview, when all the cameras were shut down, Fred Graham asked this with everybody gone. He said, Sam, I will have one question left. You know, a lawyer has one chance in perhaps 10,000 in his career to get a case to the U.S. Supreme Court. This is the Super Bowl, one chance in a lifetime. Why aren't you arguing this case? In fact, he says, you're not even sitting at the table. You're going to be a spectator because you're allowing the other attorneys to sit at the table that work with you on the case. Why? I said, because at CLS, Christian Legal Society, our goal is to equip lawyers for service and not to grab the limelight. And I said, Jim wants to serve as a litigator. He wants to handle religious freedom lawsuits for the rest of his life. I, I have no such inclination. So Jim should get the experience and the credit. Fred Graham says to me, that is different. That is really different. So what happens if we lose? What if in two weeks from today, the Supreme Court is in recess until March 1st?
What if the Supreme Court says no to Lisa and her friends? We have already prepared an approach which will go into place in May when we are going to encourage all Christian students in our public schools, win or lose, to go to their principals and ask if during that week there is any job that needs to be done from raking to painting to cleaning because we want to be servants, win or lose, because we have a sovereign God and there's no need to fret. There's no need to fret. So delight yourselves in the Lord. He'll give you desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He'll bring it to pass. Because the Lord knows. The Lord has established the steps of a man and He delights in His way. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we can address you as Father rather than Sir. That we are related to you because you have chosen us, not because we have created you. Father, we so often treat you as a stranger, as someone that we're not related to, as someone that really only exists as an idea rather than as a person. And Father, our prayer would be that we would treat you as you want to be treated, as a person as a father, as someone that reigns, as someone that knows the end from the beginning, as someone that rules history because it is indeed your story. Father, we thank you for the gift of life, the gift of time. Help us to use it wisely. In thy name we pray. Amen.